Welcome back to Creative Risk, the podcast about the brave souls in the creative industries who haven't been afraid to put it all on the line. In each episode, we feature a different guest who has faced the uncertainties of creative life with gusto and determination and come out on top. I'm your host, Gabriel Shalom, creative director and head of content at Pictor, the image's first team collaboration tool built for remote work. In a time of global uncertainty, we hope our show helps fortify you for the challenges ahead with true stories of success against the odds and a behind the scenes look at what it takes to win. father was great. He was dope. He's, uh, he's a Harlem native, loved jazz, ex-Marine, so very disciplined, um, which is something I carry with me to this day. I like a system. I like being disciplined. So um, very loving, very caring, but I would probably say towards the teenage, teenage years was in and out and passed from cancer. So... Um, then that's when I looked, obviously, just like John, towards other male figures mm. to uh, kind of guide me. The voice you just heard is Hector Guadalupe, a guest on the video talk show Question the Rules of Men, a hosted series of sometimes uncomfortable conversations about being a contemporary man. Our guest today, not Hector, but one of the men behind the production, Nate Nichols. Nate is the founder and creative director of Palette Group, an international creative agency that writes and produces branded and original narrative shorts and docu-style series. On this episode of Creative Risk, Nate gives us a glimpse into his formative years working fresh out of art school in Philadelphia and how what he learned from his mentors helped him to eventually acquire an agency and start his own business in New York City. Join us as we visit Nate's creative world and learn what it means to walk in dignity with culture. Oh, and just a quick heads up on adult language. This episode includes a couple well-intentioned four-letter words for emphasis here and there. So if that sort of thing offends your sensibilities, we just wanted to warn you in advance. Thank you so much for joining us for Creative Risk. Word, it's amazing. Creative Risk, my two favorite words. (laughs) Yeah, cool. You are a business owner, and you are a New Yorker. One of the interesting topics in your biography, one of the starting points of your career, was a previous business that you had back in Philadelphia called right. Teal Orbit. I went to art school in Philadelphia, graduated for graphic design. The day I graduated college, I wound up on a multi-million dollar campaign with Hyundai. And I literally had my like last interview hours before I walked. I got the contract, and I was managing Hyundai's Twitter account. And I was like 22 or 23 at the time, and I was living in a warehouse on a mattress. My life was pretty much insane at the time. We had sold cars, so we had the top of the sales funnel awareness all the way to the end of the sales funnel, closing the deal happened on Twitter using tactics that I taught myself and I leveraged in college while I'm living this day-to-day risk of being homeless and also kind of navigating corporate America as a freelance contractor in social media with a design degree. I wound up falling in love with my freedom my agency, I decided that I need to be around people who are smarter, greater, faster than I was. Back to my mentor's lessons, my first mentor when I was 18 years old in Philly, and we had similar upbringings and the lessons that he taught me to build my vision to understand that 
I couldn't know or do anything without having the right people around me. And I had stumbled upon a startup based in New York called Teal Orbit, and they were looking for someone to help them do new business and manage the company in their social media department. It was a wild roller coaster ride. So I'm sitting you know, on a mattress in a 300,000 square foot warehouse. And my roommate was, you know, six year old something dude who, God bless his soul, he actually passed away years ago. And he was like a, a father. I've never had a father a day in my life, but he was one of those people who stepped in my life in Philadelphia and kind of was like a big brother or a father figure to me. And that, that was my roommate, you know, I'm a 20 something year old next to a 60 something year old. And we're just like gladiators, you know, I would go to the gym to take a shower, you know, and then I'd have to go figure out how to sell $40,000 contracts to some person in San Francisco that one of the founders thought could be a good lead and a good project for us. And that process was crazy from a learning perspective, excruciating financially. I didn't make any money. I stepped into it thinking my life's already freelance and I didn't take a salary. I had to figure it out. And I was fortunate enough to be able to negotiate a partnership with them. And I stepped in my first interview, told them I wanted a partnership and they were like, all right, we appreciate and admire your candor and we'll you know assess a year from now six months came in one of the partners stepped down i was able to step up for the handshake agreement partnership and able to draw a salary nothing crazy but it allowed me to learn how to scale a team started recruiting start to sell significant contracts and built like a portfolio of a six-figure revenue on my own technically and this was a marketing and yep. and design agency digital marketing website design agency so i took all the things i learned from college and just brought it onto this agency so we were designing like social media assets for Facebook and Twitter and along with like managing their blog, doing content marketing. And our clients were like elder care brands in San Francisco and in LA or a school uniform brand based in New York that was owned by like a hundred million dollar holding company. So we were doing like good from a startup perspective, just nothing felt like it was a reflection of my core values and who I was growing to be. You know, again, I just had that itch where I was like, I don't know if I belong here anymore. I need to find a new community of people to grow with. So then I decided to leave and start Palette Group, which I'm currently the founder and creative director of. I was curious, do you remember where you were and what you were doing Mm. the day that you had to break the news? I will tell you about an experience prior to the day of, and I'll share the day of. Okay. My first time leaving the country was when I was 25. And I went to Haiti and I went to Haiti because I had met a woman who was like, you should come visit me in Haiti. And I was like, sure, why not? And my father is Haitian and I never met my father. And I thought it'd be a good way for me to connect with this gentleman I have no idea of just to be able to connect with this culture and get present to like a piece of my identity. Because at the time, I didn't feel like myself going into work every day at this company that I had built. I didn't feel like it was going in a direction that was myself. And so the feeling I had on that trip, leaving and escaping the U.S. for the first time, I felt more of myself than I had ever. I just felt this energy and this light that I felt like I was neglecting was kind of coming out back in Haiti. Just a sea of people who looked like me, walked like me, talked like me, and just had a swagger and a way of being self-expressed and existing that I just couldn't feel back in America or back at work. I felt alive and energized, but I also felt terrified. And I'll never forget journaling and at the time I picked up the practice of journaling to my father as well so I don't know my dad but I journal to my dad as much as I can so that's my relationship is a pen and paper I never forget writing to my dad being like the next few months are gonna be so hard I'm gonna be broke I may wind up living in a warehouse again and it's gonna be terrible but this is my season of sacrifice and that's one of the things that my mentor taught me is like, you will have to sacrifice something to next level in various parts of your life. So let yourself go into a season of sacrifice with intention. 
I went on another trip to Paris and Vienna with some dear friends after that in that same summer. I started to like scribble on a pad. I came up with a name, palette group. I came up with sort of a bit of the identity and the vision and the values. And I just felt like it was more tangible. I really just took my time getting present to what I was going to do next. I didn't just do it. I like imagined and I lived in the vision in my own head, like very much so like took a step in the vision. When I was ready to have the conversation, I was just like, you might as well just do some push-ups and like run on a block a few times. Like, you know, it's never it's never fun having a conversation where you know someone's maybe hurt and you intimately spent time with this life because this business is a life, right? A business is its own sort of entity with another person. And although we didn't have like the best relationship, it was still a relationship that I respected and always wanted to walk in dignity with. And so I knew that there would be some feelings. And yeah, I was just walking on eggshells, but also very confident because I had lived in the vision so much that you couldn't tell me that this wasn't the right thing because it felt so right. And I felt so good when I had to have the conversation that as soon as I started opening my mouth up and sharing how I didn't feel happy, I was just silent. And I was just waiting to hear back what my expensive partner thought. He was like, damn, there's nothing I can do. I can't solve my way out of this. You just have to do what you need to do. But what the right thing to do, in my opinion, I'm speaking on behalf of my ex-business partner, is give you the company, like give you an opportunity to take this thing wherever you want to go. And that felt great. We hear a lot of news in the startup world about acquisitions. And usually we're talking about, you know, multi-billion dollar deals or multi-million dollar deals that are like one unicorn eating another one for brunch or breakfast. I think your story is really inspiring because, you know, it just makes us aware that on the local level, on the individual entrepreneurial level, the capacity to absorb a business's assets and book a business is something that's actually possible. It's not always as amicable. So it's really great to hear that you had that experience. I want to shift gears now a little bit. Cool. One of the things that sparked my interest was a recent commission that you did for Saks. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it is that Saks does. So dope. So Saks is an underwear brand based in Vancouver, and they support men literally and figuratively. They have this, like, amazing pouch in their underwear that just, like— your, your, your balls just, like, have the greatest time, <laughs> just, like, in your pants. Like, you just never really walked around with, like, real dignity without having a pair of sacks on. And is that why they are called sacks? <laughs> Who knows? Probably. I, like, yeah, Probably. Yeah, yeah, that is hilarious. Yeah. You mentioned to me also uh, that you were saying how you were out in Vancouver recently and discovered a landscape of companies. What was that exactly? I've had many types of relationships with businessmen and women at various levels. I've sat across people who are happy with that lifestyle, sad with that lifestyle, have issues. And the one thing that I've learned that is so important in whether I sign a contract with a company or not is if the other person I'm going to be working with has the right set of values. Are we going to be able to be fair with each other? Will there be dignity? When I first signed on with Saks, I felt like they were good vibes last year. You know, my mentor taught me time either exposes you or promotes you. And so in the collaboration, promoted them to be this wonderful group of humans who really, really believed in the mission of the series that we worked on. And the series was, how can we develop an episodic series that reflected men's values in a very real and honest way to allow people watching it to sort of get present to their own values and really steep in it. And so... When we decided to work with them again, I wanted to visit them. I wanted to see what it was like in Vancouver and see, like, are they, are they, are they the real deal? And so uh, Steffi, my life partner, and I went up there, and we happened to, like, get a bunch of other meetings with a bunch of other startups. And one of the gentlemen we sat with was uh, Scott Hawthorne of uh, Native Shoes. And 
this dude, man, really humbling coffee, you know, went in cold on LinkedIn and he was just like, love your candor, dude. Let's meet here at this time on this date. And I was like, beautiful. So we got coffee and he was all the way present. You know, you meet people sometimes and they're just like half present. They're like tapping their finger and they're like, can't wait to like look at their phone or the next meeting and, and just be out. This dude met with two strangers on a like Thursday morning randomly from Brooklyn and just was really present, sharing his value, sharing a bit of his life and how he arrived to where he was and how he's living his life values and how he's done all the work, invested cash, his own cold hard cash, not VC backed, him backed to ensure that the values of native shoes existed in everybody at the company's lives so they can walk in them as well. That was just one of the three meetings of various startups that we met with. And it's so important that touches capitalism in some way because a lot of people are just walking around, just taking advantage of people, not walking in dignity and just dominating people with a dominate because it, they think it feels good and it f- strokes their ego. And so it's beautiful to find people that are fair and honest. Do you think that being in alignment with your own values in business allows you to take bigger risks? Yes. How come? I think you're able to take risks without having it stick on your conscience after. You know, you have to live with these demons and these skeletons in your closet if you allow your shadow to kind of lead you in certain directions. If you're able to walk with values, know that there are a whole community, a landscape of humans in the world that are willing to do business with you, where you could have a fair relationship, make money, and be happy. In just a moment, we're going to learn how Nate's work speaking at middle schools has informed his approach to working with clients. But first, a quick word about Pictor, the company that makes this podcast possible. In these times of remote work, collaboration on images is a challenging dilemma. Whether you're a photographer, a marketing manager, or a business owner in the creative industries, your team needs a way to keep visual feedback organized. Pictor is here to help. Our Images First project collaboration tool makes coordinating remote creative teams a snap. Comment on a project, a specific image, or annotate down to the exact pixel. Keep communication clear and feedback unambiguous. And with real-time sync to tie it all together, Pictor takes visual conversations in the cloud to a whole other level. To get started, head over to Pictor.com and take advantage of special discounts for individuals, teams, schools, and nonprofits. Pictor, visual project management done right. One of the things that you have in your experience is speaking to middle school students. I believe you did that work when you were living in Philly a little bit. I've watched some of the episodes of Question the Rules of Men, the series for Sachs, and I couldn't help but draw a connection between that work and your work mentoring middle school students. And I was curious if you felt a personal connection between those two projects. 1,000%. I didn't have a father. My first mentor was a brother, the only brother I had met at the time when I was like 17 years old in high school who had tattoos on his sleeve, rings on his finger, dreadlocks in his hair. And I just met this dude who was fly as hell working at Wild Oats. And he just represented something super important. I had never knew someone who was an adult who still had fly ass kicks, existed how he wanted to exist, 
was getting paid to create, like, paint murals on the walls throughout town, like, really, like, has its legacy all over the town. But a grown-ass man, I had no idea that I could live like that. I could be a creative and be self-expressed and make money and, like, exist in this entrepreneurial capitalistic world. And they showed me. They brought me out to, like, Las Vegas to go to the trade show when I was, like, 18. I'd, like, skip school to go to New York and diddy bop through Soho and, like, go watch Cool Herc DJ at the Adidas store in Soho when I was, like, 18. Like, who cared? Like, it was so fly. Went to vegetarian restaurants, Red Bamboo off of Washington Square Park when I was, like, 18. Learned so much about life. And I just thought it was so important when I had a certain level of success, the studio, the staffing, you know, a certain level of income with the business, knowing where I came from, how I came up, like going through foster care, having a mother who's on disability income, you know, just not being able to have the entitlement and privilege, but to have one person. And obviously, I'm speaking of one person. There are many individuals, women and men who have inspired, motivated and informed, like did everything to make sure that I can learn and grow and be a platform for me. I'm just like forever indebted to those human beings. And so I had to show up in middle schoolers' lives, right? And if I could create a piece of content that was reflective of the work I did going from school to school where people can consume it online, that's my duty to like put that out there is to ensure those values that I like spoke with my mouth one-to-one or one-to-fifty with these youth to put on the internet with a brand who wants to subsidize that, like, hell yeah, let's do it. Like, you want to do it? Let's do it. We'll help you do it the right way and make sure it's honest and real and true. However we can figure out how to do it, we'll do it. So that's kind of the connection. That's beautiful. Uh, When I watched it, I immediately felt a kinship to the motivations behind it. I've participated in a men's group myself, a casual one organized by some friends. The idea that you expose that both powerful and vulnerable archetype of what is masculinity, I think that's such valuable work. I was wondering what your feeling is about, and this is taking a slight step back, but I think it's related. This type of material is out there on the internet and it's being paid for by companies, by brands, in their budget, in the line item, it's content marketing, Mm -hmm. right? But is it something more than that? Are we seeing uh, an age where brands, in a way, if they want to take the responsibility, have an ability to have an impact on culture in general? What do you think? A thousand percent. I've been trying to figure out how to reframe the agency to be positioned as like, we're the culture company, are the culture creatives. There are organizations doing it, and they're doing it from a representation perspective for race. And I think what we've kind of done is like laterally done it. So like not only can we speak to culture from a race perspective, but we're talking about masculinity. We're talking about femininity. There's this stickiness to culture that I think the generation after us, so Gen Zers, they're super excited to feel truth and to feel equity and dignity, they're just tired of the bullshit. It's so dope that this is you. They're just holding brands accountable. Your capitalism and your way of doing business just isn't going to work on them. We're not on Instagram. We're not on Snapchat anymore. We're going to TikTok. And if you're not funny, if you're not real, if you're not representing the culture, if you're not doing the latest dance to like the flyest rap song or the flyest trap track, if you're going to do it, you're not going to do it honestly, they're not going to give a fuck. So the fact that you're able to step with a culture and a community and be with them in it, that's true equity. And that's what's important for brands to do is for them to level themselves down a bit not thinking themselves as like hey we're just going to subsidize this because we need to subsidize this but like no we want to be with you we want to understand you because they realize that it's important for the community to recognize that they're with that culture so they're with men they're not just paying for men to just be on a soapbox that's the difficult distinction that few companies are able to make clearly with your clients you found a way to 
get them on board for projects where they're giving you the chance to reflect back to them values that they believe in, but without micromanaging the mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you do that? How do you have these client relationships where uh, that happens? I have no idea. I just think we've built a body of work. And I'm again, I'm fortunate to have been able to work with the creatives I have over the past like six or seven years and really, really just respect and admire where people come from. And they don't want to be manipulative or trite. Like, the word trite was just bounced off my studio when we had it in Philadelphia. Like, if it felt trite, you know, our photographer would be like, nah, that's trite. (laughs) And I love that, you know, because we want to be honest and real. And, like, that's the body of work that we were able to create and attract. And I want to touch on one project before we move on. It's the Foot Locker project we just did. Oh, yeah. Foot Lockers is, like, age-old legacy brand, right? And they have never once done a Black History Month campaign. Wow. And they stepped to us and commissioned us to do their first ever Black History Month campaign. It was beautiful because you had this one woman, Patricia, she worked the retail floor, and now she's running the women's department, so buying on wholesale deals for women's sneakers for Foot Locker. It's insane, and that's so beautiful that they put gave her the platform. So now people who work in retail now have this aspiration, I can actually stay here. This can be a career, a lifelong career at Foot Locker. There isn't a ceiling here. I have the opportunity to continue to scale and have upward mobility in this place and space because they actually care. Yeah, a lot of companies don't give their employees that sense of stakeholdership. When you were approached to do that project, did you feel a sense of responsibility or gravitas about what you were doing? Yes, I definitely felt like there was a a weight. As a person of color, as a black man in America, like there's a responsibility and it's the same thing of like why I visited the youth. For a while growing up, I was just Jamaican. I didn't consider myself an African-American because I grew up in a Jamaican household without a father and I was like Jamaican. I didn't didn't think that I was African-American because that wasn't my experience. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I like hit me like, oh, shit, I'm black. Like, I'm black, black. Like, I can go to the South and be like fucked up, lynched black. It's my duty now to ensure that I'm able to communicate to people who don't understand where I come from and where people that look like me come from, how to like admire, respect and understand where we come from and also be able to represent my community in a way that's dignified as well. That's not like trite and that's not like alienating to them. There's definitely a balancing act that needs to happen where I don't want to overdo it. You know, I don't want to be like, we're black and we're black and we're black as hell. Like, that's not the idea. (laughs) It's like the idea is, you know, not only are we black, but we have these life experiences that are important that are just like any other person on the face of the earth to have life experiences. And we're not just these people to be perceived as black people wearing sneakers that work at the sneaker company. It reminds me of a, of a comedian that my wife was watching the other day, a black female comedian who was making jokes about the fact that, like, can't we just have some billboards of black people doing regular things? Right. Like, <laughs> like, you know, going grocery shopping or, like, going to the dentist's office yeah, yeah, or, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe having, like, I don't know, some ice cream on a bench. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure you feel as a Jewish person. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I mean, especially, you know, in a a city like New York where if you're not connected to the Jewish community, you might have some perception that all Jews are people who walk around wearing all black with big hats. Right. No, that doesn't represent my Jewish identity at all. New York is a funny place. It's like a melting pot. You know, that's one food metaphor, but sometimes I think of it as like the way little kids like to eat. They like to put all the food on their plate and separate it completely (laughs) so none of it touches. I kind of feel like that's what Brooklyn and Queens are like sometimes, you know, like as mixed up as it is, it's still kind of segregated. It's still kind of ghettified. And so, yeah, you have those misperceptions, I think, across the board, you know. thousand percent. You've talked about a number of your mentors in this conversation. Is there a place that you go to when 
things are tough and feeling like, maybe I'll reflect on my own experience and you see if this stacks up. Is like, there's a Yiddish word for this. It's chutzpah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandparents and great-grandparents had buckets of chutzpah. Like what mm. they did in their lifetimes as immigrees, massive undertaking. When you have these relatives and these people that you've kind of derived from, you're like generationally connected through through your DNA, I think you just get it, you know. It's just somewhere in between the strands of DNA that you have where like you're going to have the chutzpah too. And it's not like you feel guilty or you have to do it. It's just like in you to just do it. But I think that work, whatever work you did to identify with that narrative only reinforces it. The fact that you know your grandmother's or your grandparents' stories are super important. I think a lot of people of color, especially in America, African-Americans, don't know their great-grandparents or their grandparents because of slavery. And it's like, that shit's real. Like, the more you have someone or something to be able to rationalize or validate your identity, the more traction you're able to get in your day-to-day life and your aspirations to, like, create impact in business, professional, as a student, or whatever. And so I think that connection to your identity is super important. I think what you said is very true. Like, when you resonate the history of your ancestors, it gives you strength. Mm -hmm. But I think it's still so important to honor the distinct different histories, you know? thousand percent. I think it takes conversations like this where we get to share our ancestry and, you know, where our DNA comes from and how it's applied to our day-to-day life, resonate with each other and feel, just are able to empathize. That word empathy is so, such a challenge to use. Some people, I think, misuse it. And I think there are plenty of opportunities for people to empathize when they do just take off the veil, take down the filter and just speak real about, like, their experience in day-to-day life, but also their culture and their family's experience and really just get present to it together as a collective, even if we're from different cultures and different spaces and places. So I think it's super important to continue to have these conversations and grow together and and grow empathy. I have one more thing. As many as you want. This is great. I love I love the direction yeah. we took. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that coming, but I love showing up for what happens. So yeah. one thing I've thought a lot about, about people that do the kind of work that we both do, creating content and culturally relevant content, is what is our strategy? What is our game plan, given the fact that more and more Gary Vaynerchuks are out there who are encouraging everybody to make stuff, and the algorithms are tasked with deciding who sees what? Right. How do you feel you enter into that very technological reality and make work that is going to stand up to that? Uh, I don't want to call it a threat, but sort of a, a force, right? Word. Because I think there's a tidal wave of that kind of like low fidelity, not very well thought through, perhaps trite content. <laughs> How do you face off with the robots? Word. I think it's Gary V. admire what he's done. You know, and if you just pull apart what he's doing on a day-to-day, fundamentally, he's not doing anything that we shouldn't be doing. Like, he built and designed a community around a certain set of values, and he's functionally doing lo-fi content because he feels like that's the way he needs to scale. And, like, respect, Ralph, like, get you, do you, and... I'm just going to do it a different way. And I think there's a different market for that. There's an opportunity for everyone to create how you want to create. You find your unique positioning and your means to living a fulfilled and gratifying creative life. Whatever that looks like and feels like to you, I landed on culture. I happened to grow into that experience of feeling like culture was super important to me as I create. And I also like weird imaginative abstract shit. And like that's the type of shit I like as well. So I'm going to do that as that too when I feel like it I just think you just have to identify what truly makes you feel happy and what you want to do the rest of your life 
you should work and grow into a space where you're like, I can do this the rest of my life. I found it. This is a thing that I can painstakingly wake up, just like Gary Vee wakes up, puts a fucking camera on his face, and he's like, blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's the thing he found himself being gratified to do. And like, if you want to be a, a vlogger and go do you and, you know, do that trite content, like, more power to you, bro. You found it. You found the thing that you're happy with. And I think that's the only way we're going to beat the algorithms is if we're all happy and not sad doing the shit we don't want to do, but we're happy and gratified grinding every day doing the thing that we want to do. I mean, I totally understand and respect the energy that he's coming from. And I think it's the appropriate path for a lot of people, a lot of businesses to take his advice. Mm -hmm. I think at the same time, if we all take his advice, Mm -hmm. if everybody does low fidelity, high churn, daily content, we're goners. Yeah, like we, it's not, it. it's not gonna, and it, and it's partly just the way that we take in these streams, you know, and the fact that it's just, I mean, let's face it, it it's a slot machine, right? Right. We know that. We know that the technology is a slot machine. We yeah. know that it's designed to be addictive, and that it's designed to get our attention Word. and continuously cycle through. So, yep. how do you approach that and break it? How do you approach it and say, no, I'm I'm going to be contrarian. I'm going to make something that. You need to watch for an hour. <laughs> nah, and I think you just got to do it. Yeah. You know, I've never been afraid to just do things, even if it doesn't seem like the market wants it. And the market will come. The people will show up. If you do something dope and it's clean and it's elevated, brands just have to test and figure it out. Creators just have to test and figure it out. Not lean startup style to the point where, like, you know, killing yourself, constantly trying to, like, iterate, iterate, and iterate. But there's a balance. Find a pace that works for you. Find a level of creativity that works for you in find the end deliverable that works for your community and stick to it. Nate, this has been incredible. We touched on so many interesting topics and things I didn't see coming, and that's exactly why I knew I wanted you to be on the show. So thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and... uh, Appreciate it. No problem, Appreciate it, bro. Appreciate the down-to-earth and real honest conversation, dog. And that's it for episode two. Thanks again to Nate for opening up to us about his creative journey. You can check out his company's portfolio at palettegroup.com. That's P-A-L-E-T-T-E-G-R-P.com. Coming up on episode three, we'll be taking a trip away from the plush acoustics of our New York sound studio to a new frontier of home studio recordings as Creative Risk makes the bold leap into remote podcast production under quarantine. We'll be speaking with a surprise guest as our new setup has changed our production schedule, but rest assured, it will be creative and it will be risky. This episode of Creative Risk was written, produced, and edited by me, Gabriel Shalom. Recorded by Corey Choi at Silver Sound in New York City. Engineering and original music by Alberto D'Angeli. Special thanks to Palette Group for use of the excerpt from Question the Rules of Men. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and share with your creative friends. Check out show notes and links to some of the things that we discussed with Nate on our blog at blog.pictor.com. Creative Risk is hosted on Anchor.fm and is available on a wide variety of podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, CastBox, and SoundCloud. We can't wait to bring you the next episode. Have a suggestion for somebody you think we should feature as a guest? Have a question about something we talked about? Email me at gabriel at picter.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Is your creative team taking risks on project management that are unnecessary? 
Start your free trial of Pictor this week to get hands-on with the Images First team collaboration tool built for remote work. Pictor is currently available at a 50% discount for teams, a 75% discount for individuals, and completely free for academic institutions and nonprofits. To learn more about this special pricing offer, visit pictor.com. That's P-I-C-T-E-R.com. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, be safe, wash your hands, and wear a mask if you go out in public.